Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday, and welcome to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis in for Bill Radke. We've got a full slate of news today, and thankfully, we've got the panel to handle it. Joining us today is business insider investigative reporter Catherine Long. Welcome, Catherine. Hey, thanks for having me. Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. It's good to see you, Erica, virtually every time I'm in the newsroom here. Uh, yeah, it seems to happen. We coincide all the time. It's awesome. <laughs> KOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis, another person. And Mike, I want to personally thank you for giving us the sorely needed Mike majority or maybe plurality here in the newsroom. <laughs> Glad to be here, Mike. You can also stream this show on YouTube and on Facebook. Let's get to it. Some 1,000 Amazon employees, well, that's projected anyway, are planning on walking out Wednesday, May 31st over Amazon's return to office policies and layoffs. Amazon cut 18,000 corporate positions earlier this year and plans to cut about 9,000 more. Catherine, we're fortunate to have you here as an Amazon expert. You've been covering Amazon employee issues for years. What is this all about? Well, the return to office issue is at the core of this proposed walkout. And we say proposed walkout because the organizers have said that they're only going to actually walk out if they get 1,000 employees to pledge to do so. And that's a big number, right? Right, right. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to come up with that number. But um, what we've heard from employees is that some of them, uh, when they signed on with new jobs at Amazon, they were sort of promised in a handshake agreement that despite uh, Amazon's uh, proposal to return to an office-centric culture, their jobs would be remote virtually forever. And so they moved into places that were several hours away from the Seattle headquarters, and now they're being asked to come in three days a week. They're pretty upset about that. Uh, Earlier this year, 30,000 Amazon employees signed a petition asking the company to walk back its return to office policy. Uh, That petition got flatly rejected. And now they're preparing. Almost immediately rejected, (laughs) if I remember correctly. Immediately smacked down by Amazon's HR chief. And now employees are preparing for more um, more escalation in light of Amazon's insistence that they come back to the office and also in light of continued layoffs. And the last issue they're organizing around is climate issues. Um, Amazon Employees for Climate Justice is one of the groups that has propelled this, um, this walkout pledge forward. And they're saying that Amazon is failing to decarbonize its operations. We know that Amazon is undercounting its emissions. Yesterday, we learned that Amazon has given up on one of its climate pledge goals to make 50% of its shipments net zero by 2030. Um, The company has said that that goal is made redundant by uh, its overall pledge of reaching net zero across all of its operations by 2040, but uh, employees don't see it that way. Well, and they did name an arena. Wasn't that enough? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently apparently not. Let let me one quick follow-up with you, Catherine. Do you think that, and you would know this better than most, do you think that Amazon, uh, which isn't done with layoffs, obviously, is maybe seeking a cheaper form of attrition with employees who might quit over this issue? I think that's certainly possible, um, but that remains to be seen. Mike, question for you. Given the layoffs across the tech sector, sector, the slowing economy, how much leverage do you think workers actually have right now? There's been some talk that all of these layoffs across the tech sphere and other, and other companies is really an effort not just to lose employees but to reset expectations on job future, job permanence, uh, what you can demand in terms of benefits. How do you feel about that? Do you think that there is a maybe a corporate reset going on here? I think there's a major reset going on here. When I say here, Seattle feels like we're at the epicenter. We see what employees are doing at Amazon. We see the Starbucks employees. We, we're right here in the center. But it seems like we're getting that reset on both sides, right? So right. we're seeing the layoffs. We're seeing Amazon come with the mandates. We're seeing Microsoft. We talked about this last time I was here. But on the other side, we're also seeing employees pushing back. So when we see things like the petition, we see this walkout. We, we see the rising talk of people quiet quitting. We see people who are, um, like Catherine mentioned, they want to live where they live and be able to work where they work. And when there wasn't a drop in productivity during the pandemic, when everyone was at home, it makes it a harder sell for corporations to force people back in. 
I'm actually curious to hear from Erica on this issue because I, I just want to know, is there a connection with these corporations trying to force people back into the downtown core and the city wanting to revitalize downtown? Because what's really at the center of this, Mike? That's the real question. Why? Like, what does Amazon get from having this battle with their employees of trying to bring them back in the office. We know it's a disaster to work in Amazon's warehouses, but under Bezos, people actually liked those corporate jobs. Right. What do they gain from trying to bring people back? And that's the big question. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to think that, you know, there is a connection here. Um, The mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell, has, you know, really banked the entire, you know, quote unquote, revitalization of downtown, meaning, you know, uh, getting rid of tents, um, you know, sort of ending some of the disorder and open, you know, criminal activity on bringing people back to work. Um, And Amazon, uh, although it's not exactly downtown, and, you know, I think it's been oversold how much it's going to actually impact the downtown core. um, That is a huge part of it. And, you know, Harrell is also, you know, forcing city employees to come back to work. So, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm with you. I sort of question how much this force um, you know, uh, th- this forced return to these office jobs is uh, is going to be you know compelling to people because there are still alternatives. Well, let me ask all three of you then. This is a question. So, so at one particular point, uh, Andy Jassy said that workplaces need in person collaboration to teach, and he referred to it to teach to build culture to find success. I'm curious because I would say personally, as a journalist. Working in a newsroom was massively important for me to be good at my job. I can understand somebody making the argument that you don't. it's hard to build a culture remotely. I'm not saying it can't happen. But do you think there's any validity to this idea that, that actually having people back working together is important for a big company like Amazon? I, I think that there's certainly a validity to the idea that having people work together can build culture. I think that one thing we've heard from Amazon employees is that prior to remote work being an option, prior to the pandemic, a lot of the culture at Amazon was um, highly uh, surveillance-oriented. <laughs> right. uh, the culture was spending long hours But maybe at your that's desk. a cultural point, is surveillance. Yeah, and you know, one thing that employees are pushing back on is that uh, their their badge swipes are now being tracked to see how many times they're they're going into the building, and they're worried that if they're not going in three times a week, they might be disciplined, even if you know something comes up and they have to stay home, and they're perfectly capable of performing their job from home. Amazon has said that that's not going to happen, but I don't think that that's an unreasonable fear from employees. Can yeah, I, and can I? Uh, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say you can't impose culture on a group, right. and right. you can't do that from a corporate level. I mean, I too have, you know, worked in newsrooms and there were good things and bad things about them. I mean, for me, particularly as when I was a young woman, um, there were things that really sucked about working in cultures that were dominated by people who were very different than me, let's say. Um, and so I don't think all culture, all corporate culture is automatically good, obviously. Um, surveillance <laughs> culture. I right. mean, you know, I, I just I can't imagine what that would be like. Um, but I think you can build culture in an organization um, more organically than that. And that does involve in-person collaboration. I don't think it's all or nothing or one or the other. But I think when it's mandated from above, it's sort of doomed to fail. Mike? This is why I like when Erica is here. We're, we're in sync. And, you know, I'm sitting with these two esteemed reporters and I'm taking the reporter hat off. And I'm going to just be real with you. We don't want your culture. Like, like I come from a generation, we don't care about that. Like, we don't, we're not coming at work to find our best friends anymore. We have lives outside of this. We are also not looking to work for one organization for 30 years and pray to God that you honor our pension. We're out here, we're, we're job jumping. I can't tell you how many different places I've worked in the last five years. These companies have to serve us, and it's not the other way around anymore. Amazon could do whatever they want, but I bet you a lot of those employees are going to leave. And it's it's different for Amazon with the rotating door that is the warehouse, but quiet is kept. Cybersecurity is really where they make their bread over there. Like that's a that's a lot of what they're doing. They need people to come in and do this coding. You don't want to lose those people. I just I'm just I guess overall I'm not here for the idea that we all have to huddle around in a circle and have this forced fake culture. 
I, well, I, I like I, where we are right now. We come in when we want to come in, when we need to come in. But but the style of, of having those choices, having those options, and really actually for the first time feeling like we have healthy work life balances. I don't think workers are giving that back. Let me ask you. Let me that the, you raised some very good points. So. What about my, what Mike just said? Do you feel like, I mean, your opinion of Amazon's culture, or culture maybe, uh, from a workplace standpoint is, is a little dimmer, I would say, than Andy Jassy's. What do you think about it? What are you hearing from, from Amazon employees? Do they feel like this culture is less constructive or more and more deconstructive than it is actually helpful? So uh, for full transparency, I haven't talked to Amazon employees about this most recent return right. to home um, uh, imbroglio, right. <laughs> return to office imbroglio. Um, but what I've heard from employees in the past is um, that in general, when they were allowed to work from home full time, they felt like they had a lot more control over their schedules and they felt like they could do the work that was being asked of them and then sign off. They didn't need to stay penned to their Face desks. FaceTime, things like, you exactly. know, like, like people seeing them at their desks, right? Right, exactly. Um, so I think that that is where some of this unhappiness over the return to office mandate is coming from, as as well as folks who have been hired during the pandemic and and are, you know, do, don't live anywhere near any anywhere close to the offices. Right, and the people who actually came into their job and they they were working remotely now they're going That's to right. have to find some way. And the deal right now, as I understand it, is a three two correct three days in, two days out for yes. most corporate employees, or is or is there exclusions on that, or do you know? Uh, it seems to be somewhat manager by manager. My colleague Eugene Kim reported on that last month um, that some some organizations seem to have more flexibility than others. And I think that's another source of tension. Right. The, your boss is different than someone else's that's boss right. and your ability to come in and out. Well, one of the things that you also brought up that they were uh, unhappy about is the whole issue regarding Amazon and its climate pledge. Let's move to sort of a sortly, sort of collateral element on that, and Seattle City Council approved an ordinance Tuesday that attempts to protect tens of thousands of more trees in the town and create new requirements for replacing those that are cut down. The city council members passed this ordinance. Six to one, several council members said while the ordinance said that the ordinance is not perfect. Erica, let's start with you. What does the ordinance do, and what is so imperfect about it? <laughs> well, essentially, the ordinance um, extends uh, not really protections, but restrictions on the removal of tens of thousands more trees, as you said. Um, by different measures, it triples, quadruples, or even, uh, you know, 10 times, whatever how, whatever the word for that is, the number of trees that will be restricted. So now if you want to remove a tree on your lawn, if you are a developer who wants to build a duplex or fourplex, um, you're going to have to look at the size of the tree, um, input it into a formula in some cases, and either replace the tree with one that will grow as big as the tree you're removing or um, sp- spend up to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the size of the tree, uh, into a fund through which the city will um, go and replace trees. Right. It's something they expect. It, it seemed like a rather small amount. It seems like they expect the fund to collect like $190,000 next year or something Yeah, and that's going to be dwarfed a by... A down payment on one house in Seattle. <laughs> right. And it'll be dwarfed by the amount they're spending to on administrative overhead in new City of Seattle <laughs> government employees, <laughs> right. um, which I think is around $300,000 per year. So, um, you know, in, in a strictly economic sense, it's going to be pretty futile. <laughs> so, so what's really going on here in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, um, you know, as uh, Councilmember Dan Strauss pointed out in response to many of Councilmember Alex Peterson's um, proposals to make this this thing go even further, um, it is it is a proxy for anti-development in, in many ways. The state just passed a law that says you can build um, up to six units um, on some properties, up to four on others. So that essentially does away with the vestiges of single-family-only housing throughout the state, uh, or single-family-only zoning. Of towns of a certain size. Of towns of a certain size, yes. And it doesn't mean that any houses are going to be destroyed or ripped out. It just means that, you know, if you own a house, you can choose to develop it as a, you know, an apartment building, a very small one. So uh, this is a reaction in part to that, in part to just the fact that, you know, there's tons, and I think we're going to talk about this later, but there's lots of people moving here and they need housing. And so there's always been this tension between, you know, people who say they want to protect the urban forest, which they define as being only on private land um, in people's yards and things like that, um, and uh, the need for more housing. Um, I will say, you know, one of the things that I've really hammered uh, in my coverage of this is that 
the uh, the major or almost half um, and the plurality of trees that have been removed or lost in the city are on the city's own public lands, uh, including parks. So the city could decide that that it wants to prioritize that if the concern is really trees, um, which is why I would uh, cast a somewhat skeptical eye at that at that claim. Well, I was going to sort of turn this to Mike because sometimes the issue of a tree canopy in neighborhoods. Uh, that have good tree cover as opposed to ones that don't has been called a matter of equity as well. There are there are neighborhoods, the treeless neighborhoods, the, the the neighborhoods with fewer trees in the neighborhood. You can almost overlay the map with level of income and number of trees in all throughout Seattle. I mean, when you see an ordinance like this, Mike, do you feel like this is? I mean, and also these less expensive neighborhoods. Well, there's not an inexpensive one in Seattle, but less expensive neighborhood. That's also those are the ones most under threat or under the possibility of development. Those are the ones where houses are getting purchased, areas are getting gentrified. I mean, when you see this ordinance, Mike, what do you think? When I see this ordinance, that was the first thing that I thought. Uh, I thought about the South End. I thought about what's right. going to happen to the neighborhoods. What's going to happen to our neighborhoods? When you look at, you know, you mentioned that you can lay that map over and see, you know, how um, wealth versus trees. Right. But that's literal. Like NPR literally did that. Right. You know, they had that study in 2019. They also looked at during heat waves how hot certain neighborhoods got. And right here in Seattle, there's a 14 and a half degree difference. Think about that. In neighborhoods within degrees, our city. Right. So like when, when you look at the map of, you know, looking at Rainier Beach versus looking at Magnolia and we look at heat waves, we just had a heat wave this month. So when these heat waves that are coming through happen, who's going to be impacted by that? That's the South End. So all of this jargon, all of this political talk, it all missed me. All, all I really want to know is what does this mean for the South End? What, what does this mean for the people in those neighborhoods? Is it going to get hotter over there? Are they going to have trees? It, it's really nice to say that this new ordinance will protect 88,000 trees versus 17,000 last time. Where are those trees? Whose neighborhoods are they in? And who gets the benef- who gets the benefit of having shade in their neighborhood and who doesn't? Well, Catherine, you brought this up once before about how it feels, I think you, you mentioned this in, in notes, that, that it feels like the city is pushing a responsibility from, from itself and its own land to uh, homeowners and to developers. Is that, is that true? Or certainly the people who are behind this proposal are doing that, right? right? So building on Erica's point that the vast majority of the trees that have vanished in, in recent years are on public publicly owned land, yet the contours of this debate are all about trees whose uh, – the responsibility for, for, for caring for those trees rests with homeowners or, or property owners. Um, it seems it seems strange to me that the – you know. The people who are behind this proposal seem to have co-opted the contours of this debate to move it from why can't we plant more trees as a city, (laughs) especially in places that need them, to we need to save trees that are in these largely wealthier neighborhoods. Yeah, and I would, um, you know, just add to that. I mean, to, to in direct response to your question, I mean, it doesn't do anything to plant trees in the South End. I mean, there was there was at one point Alex Peterson had floated an idea that was just, I mean, a non-starter to essentially force people to who removed a tree, like if I cut down, had a lawn, cut down a tree, whatever, developed my property. Um, and uh, so in, it, I could either pay into this fund or I could go to the South End and I could choose uh, a spot in front of, you know, your house and say, I'm going to point and literally and I'm, I'm going to plant a tree that you did not consent to in front of your house of a type that you didn't had nothing to say. About. I mean, it that was you just, will now need to take care of care of. Yeah, that, that is now your responsibility. I mean, it would have been the city's responsibility for a while or actually would have been the homeowner's responsibility for a while. So there's this I mean, there were some bizarre ideas that were being floated. But what really needs to happen is the city needs to invest heavily in tree planting in areas that are these heat islands that are you know, historically incredibly disinvested and not worry so much um, about, you know, or not pretend to worry, I would say, so much about, you know, these leafy, you know, lush areas in North Seattle and Magnolia that, um, that you know, are not in imminent danger of losing massive amounts of trees. So I just I, I just feel like the whole thing was, you know, a proxy for anti-development um, and sentiment and um, 
And and the new rules are pretty Byzantine. Well, 40 pages worth. I mean, there I was looking through other city ordinances. It has more written about it in the city and city ordinance than many other things that one would assume are a little bit more important. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in a minute with more Week in Review. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis, in for Bill Radke. Joining us today is business insider and investigative reporter Catherine Long, Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett, and KUW uh, arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. I just want to say Mike so quickly. The <laughs> issue, this, is, this one caught me, this story caught me a little bit uh, off guard. Uh, the, the FYI guy for the Seattle Times pointed out that Seattle, after a bit of a slump in population, and while most urban centers lost a lot of population during the pandemic, including Seattle, some have started to make a comeback, and leading the pack is Seattle, which according to the Seattle Times, is again the fastest growing large city in the country. We are now at the cusp of 750,000 residents. I think the number is right at 749. Uh, Mike, you first. Why is Seattle growing again after just a brief slump during the pandemic? I think that's easy. Seattle is, and look, I, I point out Seattle's faults all the time, but I live here by choice. Seattle's a great place to live if you can afford it. If you can afford it, this is it's the place to be. I mean, we're, we got access to hiking, beaches, oceans, trails, all that. We have a, a wonderful arts and culture team. We have so many professional sports teams. This is the place to be. And for a while, a lot of those high-paying tech jobs – we're allowing you to live wherever you want. So you didn't even really necessarily have to be in downtown or be anywhere congested. You you know, like there's so many options. It's a, it's a great place to be. Catherine? Well, one thing about this data is that it covers the period from uh, 20, I, I believe, summer 2021 to summer 2022. And what we know about that period is that tech firms in particular were hiring like gangbusters. The uh, the recent onslaught of layoffs that we've seen at some of those larger firms really started uh, sort of towards the end of 2022. Uh, I, I attribute a lot of this growth in population to that hiring at places like Amazon. And let, me, let me push back on that a little bit because yeah. that was also a lot of remote hiring at that particular point. In fact, that's what the job recruiters were frequently saying is it's a non-starter at some of these companies back then, that back then being <laughs> two years ago, <laughs> that you couldn't really get much talent unless you promised remote work, which, of course, we talked about at the beginning segment because now the tension of getting them back into work. I mean, I can understand an employment increase, but a population increase sounds to me like maybe something different. Or what do you think? I think that's a good point. Uh, one thing I would suspect is that there are a lot of ancillary firms around companies like right. Amazon and Microsoft that um, were also doing a lot of hiring at that point. And I'm not entirely sure what their return to office policies were. But, um, you know, I would also suspect that folks who were getting hired for those firms, maybe they wanted to move to the area for all the reasons that <laughs> Mike Davis mentioned. Mike, uh, Erica, the the... You've brought this up in a variety of ways, but I mean, a lot of what we talk about, a lot of what we've talked about on this show and the show has talked about at other times, a lot of those things sort of stem from one load-bearing pillar, and that's Seattle's growth. When we're talking about homelessness, when we're talking about the, the affordability, when we're talking about congestion, when we're talking about everything, it seems to all come back to a city that grew so fast and so painfully – that it's created these problems that we're now starting to reconcile with. So how should we feel? I mean, if you're the Chamber of Commerce or you're you know, a business organization, you're always pumping up like, hey, we're growing again, we're popular again. 
But what, what do you see? I mean, what is the holistic view in your mind of Seattle actually, again, leading the country in growth rate, which is, I think, 2.5% or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, to echo what uh, Mike Davis said, um, I, uh, you know, I think that we just had a little slump there, but I think we've always been growing, or not always, obviously, but in recent years, we've been growing. Um, I think it's, I mean, in, in some ways, I think it's kind of beside the point to ask how we should feel about it, because we can't control growth. I mean, I've been covering the city of Seattle since 2001. And, you know, since long before then, there have been groups saying we need to control growth, we need to stop growth, we need to, you know, put a hammer on growth. And unfortunately, there's no policy that can do that. I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, I happen to like growth. I like the fact that the city is getting better, uh, bigger, and I would say better. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I I think the the ancillary problems that come with that are things, like you said, like, you know, higher housing costs because we're not building enough housing. That has a policy solution. Um, You know, homelessness, uh, the drug crisis, I think a lot of that is caused by the fact that people, you know, are not able to afford to live in the city, are, you know, in despair, are under a lot of stress. Um, and so I think there are policy solutions to those things, too. But there's no policy solution to growth. It's right. going to happen. And, uh, you know, overall, I think it's a good thing. Well, let me let me ask you this, then. The What Seattle has managed to accomplish is it's increased, not not maybe as much as, as housing advocates would suggest, but it's increased its density in some certain corridors by, by substantial margins. It's increased density without actually increasing affordability because of this growth pressure. What do you think that then the I mean, should the city just then should really focus on and I agree, there's nothing not a whole lot we can do about it. But should the city then focus on what are the what are the outgrowths of of this sort of level of population pressure? And what should this I mean, what should the city prioritize? Is it housing? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the Office of Housing recently came out with numbers saying that by 2044, we need 112 new units of housing. So the fact that we've increased density in some areas is great. But we are a hundred more than a hundred thousand units uh, behind schedule, and we need to start planning that housing yesterday. So I think housing has to be, you know, at the root of any policy to accommodate growth. Mike, when you when you see, I, I don't know if you were surprised. I was surprised. I knew that Seattle had flattened for a bit and dipped for a bit. I did not expect it to rebound this quickly in terms of growth rate, and I certainly didn't expect it to be leading the pack uh, in terms of big cities. In the United States, and I agree with you. I mean, there there are, like I always like to say, like I don't go a week here without one tourist moment where I'm just like, wow, this place is remarkable. The, during that same week, I have other, you know, lesser reactions to things, certainly. <laughs> but but what do you think when you see that Seattle is starting to like again uh, push a little harder on the growth? Do you feel like overall? That's a good thing to have a city where there's all there's going to be new people coming into town and and maybe additional attention paid to affordable housing and additional attention paid to issues. Or do you feel like deep down like, man, do we can we how much more of this can we take? Uh, Deep down, I feel bad because I'm privileged, man. Like I, I, I get to live here. I get to kick it. I get to go to sports games i'm in the theater all the time we got a world-class opera world-class symphony i get to enjoy these things i just went and kicked it in pike place like two weekends ago for the first time in a long time with my kids and we had so much fun but again like i I got the money and the access to do these things the problem in seattle i think is the haves and have nots we got this huge wealth gap excuse me that has never went anywhere right right um the city of seattle had talked about this for a while like addressing those disparities and it just hasn't come to fruition i I think that because there is so much money here and so much opportunity here people are going to want to be here and that's we're coming out of pandemic and we have so much entertainment so many things to do so much beautiful scenery and greenery as we talk about the shrinking canopy like it's going to attract people to come here. Right. The question is, where, how do we make it affordable for the people who are here? How do we make it affordable? You know, that means the service industry isn't going anywhere. So how do we make it affordable for them? That's the question. That's the question that we haven't answered. And I know we're going to we're going to talk about this regional homelessness authority Coming later. Here, right? But I, I honestly think that this topic bleeds right into that topic. Like there's there's so much there are so many systems in place that lead to unaffordable house unaffordable housing lack of houses right right like all of that plays together so yeah i'll, I'll wait for that topic but this is complicated mike it is, a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> it is complicated in fact you could yeah just talk to anyone in the city they'll tell you the same so let's let's shift 
for a moment to what I found to be the most surprising story uh, of the week, something that I did not have. I had a little bit of knowledge of, but not a lot of knowledge of, and that's regarding bicycle policing in Seattle. Crosscut did this really deep dive, highly detailed dive into the history of bicycle policing. And I always thought of it, well, it's an outreach of, it's a, I, I knew one aspect of it. It's an outreach for the community. You know, it makes, it, it sort of softens, as they say, the police image by having cops out on bicycles. But then the Crosscut story talked about the nature of bicycle policing. And, and I think that everyone in the room probably was a little caught off guard by this, although some of us have absolutely experienced I know Eric brought, Erica brought this up. The story was about what seemed as a community outreach and improved sort of small space patrolling has morphed into something more aggressive from a crowd control standpoint. And Seattle is, is setting, is leading the way, as it does in technology, apparently leading the way with bicycle patrol techniques as far as crowd control. Erica, when you saw this story, what did you think? Well, I I was not surprised. Um, I um, have had some negative experiences with police officers in Seattle, um, despite, you know, uh, all of my uh, my privilege and how you might think that is very unlikely. Um, And I've I've witnessed negative other people having negative experiences with bike cops. Um, So, you know, I I, so I I think I've talked about this on the show before, but um, I was covering a protest um, a few years back um, and, uh, you know, and I got I was trying to take a photo. I got pepper sprayed in the face at point blank, was completely blinded. And then, you know, immediately, you know, the the bike cops, they, they do this thing where they form a phalanx and they shout and move back. Um, and they shove you if you don't move. And it is absolutely terrifying. I experienced it as like this terrifying assault. I couldn't see anything. I fell down. You know, I was afraid of getting trampled. And, you know, and that is probably a mild experience compared to what a lot of protesters have experienced since then. Um, and I was a reporter, you know, with a press badge right. and a camera doing my job. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it is it is an incredibly aggressive um, use of physical objects. I also saw a guy once, and again, this is all anecdotal. Anecdotes are not data, but I saw a guy once, um, you know, in Pioneer Square getting beaten down by two cops using their bikes as weapons. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, bikes sound soft and friendly maybe um, on the Certainly on the in a town like Seattle, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, they are they are also weapons, and they they have been deployed as weapons by the, by, by the police department. Mike, when you saw this story, is it something – I mean, I, I agree with you, Eric. I mean, I've, I've seen those issues, and having covered many protests in town, I've seen that as well. What I guess I wasn't aware of was just the broad policy incentive to do these things and the fact that we were – like, we have – our local law enforcement are consultants for this sort of this sort of crowd control. Mike, when you saw this story, was there anything about it that you found surprising? All of it. Mind blown. Bike cops? The bikes were supposed to make the cops appear more friendly? Really? In Seattle? I don't know. The, uh, bike cops have always brought terror. Um, the idea that they would use our cops as consultants? Like, do they know what our cops' record is with the community? Yeah, all, I think all of that surprised me. All of it. Catherine, when when you saw when you, have you have you see, you've seen the the videos? You've probably been out covering these sort of things on on protests and whatnot. When you saw the story and you realized that this is sort of like a become a, a very kind of a, a, a an important component of bicycle policing, did you feel like this is an issue with bicycle policing? Do you feel like this is an issue broadly with with police tactics and crowd control issues? I think this is certainly an issue of police tactics. I don't think it matters what vehicle police officers are using to get around on. (laughs) I don't think riding a bicycle makes anybody more friendly. And I admit, uh, you know, one thing that was revelatory to me in this article is that I admit that I have been uh, somewhat suckered by the marketing into thinking, oh, bike cops, they're a, a friendlier version of policing. And what I found from reading this article is that even in the inception of bicycle policing, that was uh, one aspect of why uh, police officers in Seattle were advocating for, for using bicycles. But another aspect is they just found it easier to chase down and apprehend people uh, in places where cars couldn't go. So even in the in the origin story of bicycle policing, it's never... It's never been about friendliness. It's been about uh, finding new tools and new new utilities to um, exert force. Well, what about? Let me just throw throw this out then to the group. So there has been 
Uh, and this has happened. I've been a reporter long enough that this sort of like this cycle moves through. And now we're going back to a lot of advocacy for community-based policing. In other words, having having smaller groups of officers in many neighborhoods, foot patrols, the whole business that makes people actually see each other, the police and the citizens, the citizens and the police see each other as people. And that was always sort of the underpinning at least the the the, uh, the the publicity campaign around bicycle policing has always been something along those lines. Uh, who here would see do do see bicycle policing as at least a component of this? If there is some sort of move to return to to actually police on the streets, I mean, obviously we're very very short of police in Seattle, so this is not likely to happen soon. But there's been an increasing call for people don't even know the police officers in their neighborhoods. Do you think that there's a component here, Mike, for example, that 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 actually is maybe could be an effective use of police bicycle patrols? I mean, like Catherine, the bikes are are neither here nor there. I think it's about the police, but I think that this topic in general, I usually make a lot of people upset because I do believe in community policing. I do think that it can work. I used to work in the late night program for Seattle Parks. I was at Bitter Lake Community Center. True story. And we, uh, we had cops that worked in our program. And I watched these cops who were community police officers come in on the weekends, man. They play basketball with our kids. They play football with our kids. They also patrolled that neighborhood, that stretch on Aurora, that infamous stretch. And when, you know, the kids would would be messing around during the high school days, some of those cops would pick those kids up and bring them to the community center. Like, can y'all deal with them? Right. Instead of taking them to jail. So I, I have in a very isolated situation seen community policing work. And I, I did consider some of those cops to be friends, man. They was cool people. So like, um, I, I know how people look at SPD and I, I think that SPD has certainly earned the reputation that they have. Um, you just heard Erica's stories, right? But on the other end, I do think that making cops a part of the community, there is something to that. And I have with my own eyes seen cops that were able to look at these youth, these BIPOC, primarily black youth, and see them as people and not statistics and see how that changed the way that those police officers interacted with those kids and how those kids interacted with police officers. So it it can be done. Unfortunately, I've never seen it done on a large scale, and I haven't heard these type of stories come out of South Seattle. And so this program that you worked on, does this program still exist? Yeah, it's, it's it's the late night, the late night team program. Yeah. Seattle Parks and Rec. It, it's still happening. All right, then. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be back in just a minute with Week in Review. Welcome to Friday, lovely Friday, and to Week in Review. I'm Mike Lewis, in for Bill Radke. Joining us right now is Catherine Long, investigative reporter for the Business Insider, public color co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett, arts and culture reporter Mike Davis with KUOW. Thank you all for hanging out for the entire show and not leaving early. All right. Um, We've got the issue that I think we've been building toward and a lot of what we've talked about uh, thus far in the show. No, it's not Taco Bell. The <laughs> issue that we're going to talk about uh, is – so we've had some upheaval. I'm going to defer quickly to Erica who probably knows more about this than anyone. Uh, we've had a bit of upheaval within the regional uh, agency tasked with addressing the homeless problem. Mark Dones has announced his resignation. I think you've, ta- you've talked and written about this. Erica, let's talk – briefly about uh, Mark and why he might be leaving. I don't know that we have a clear reason for this. And then let's talk about what it means for homeless policy, particularly as it relates to tiny homes uh, in Seattle. First, why is Mark leaving? So Mark, um, who uses they, them pronouns, um, is, uh, you know, I think leaving after a bunch of bungles that happened within the agency. It's been really struggling um, over the last two years to sort of 
define itself and um, and and to do some of the sort of basic stuff that an agency like this needs to do: uh, getting contracts out the door, paying the people that it is contracting with. Um, the nuts and bolts. The nuts and bolts stuff was not happening in um, a fashion that you know that providers thought was reasonable. I think there was a lot of kind of visionary, big picture thinking that was continuing to go on long beyond the point when policies needed to be um, getting into place. You know, Mark was often talking about we need to define the problem. And I'm just saying that this is how big the problem is. And so maybe it costs $12 billion when we only have $100 million, um, but I'm just defining the problem. And I think that we were uh, we are long beyond the point of defining the problem, um, although that is important. And to the point of, you know, we need to start implementing solutions and stop learning these lessons that we have learned over and over again. Like we don't have a lot of affordable housing to just put people into. So when you say, you know, oh, we're going to not do shelter anymore, we're not going to do tiny homes anymore. Um, we're we're going to you know uh, we're going to slowly sort of move away from those kinds of things and from congregate shelters. Didn't his didn't his spokesperson refer to to tiny homes as a shanty town or something along those lines? <laughs> I mean that's entirely possible. I that was not that was not a quote that I got. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 five year plan that they had for the agency was uh, it, you know initially called for a reduction in tiny homes um, while increasing all other forms of shelter, but particularly you know, quote unquote, emergency housing and just tons and tons of safe lots for RVs, which is not a realistic plan at all um, in the the actual city that, you know, environment that we are actually operating in. So there's just, um, yeah, there was a lot of frustration, I think, with um, the difference between the vision and the reality. Mike, when you when you see and you go like everyone else in town, you walk past the the tiny home communities because that was something that was that became a little bit of a flashpoint. Uh, with Doan's administration. Uh, do you see that as a likely, possible, worthwhile solution, or at least a partial solution, uh, to what we're dealing with regarding the unhoused in Seattle? When we look at how big this problem is, I don't think we're in any position to turn away any solution. Anything that's going to get people into housing, I would definitely agree with. So I, I don't understand that particular stance that was there. And I, I don't think that that their job was impossible, but I do agree with Erica in that the expectations became impossible to attain. And as we have this conversation, right, our, our city still growing. Right. Uh, we know that we are hundreds of thousands of units behind. It doesn't matter who you put in this position moving forward. The numbers are the numbers, this problem is going to keep getting bigger. There's so many other policies that have to align to really address homelessness that that this job can't do it alone. You can only do the things that you can do. You don't got 12 billion. You have what you have. So what are you going to do with it? So turning your back on solutions like tiny homes to me sounds foolish. I think you really have to do you have to use everything that's at your disposal. And unfortunately, the best person to be in that position is probably going to be a politician, somebody that really knows how to play the game, somebody that really, um, and Erica knows this, he's not somebody that knows, you know, how the contracting works, how to speak that language and really get in there. And we want to prioritize lived experience, and that is important, but you might need some lived experience with dealing with government agencies, and right. like how they relate to nonprofits. There's a lot there. Well, there's the the old, the, the old statement, the cliche about uh, that, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress, right? That, that that you need to do a variety of things and just try to move the move it forward. Catherine, when what do you think about the very? I think these are a couple of very very good points. What do you think about the idea that you kind of need a bureaucratic expert, especially on something that's a regional authority where you're dealing with a variety of jurisdictions, exactly. a very very complicated project, a very very complicated social situation. I mean, is there some, do you feel like there's some, at least from what you've been reading, do you feel like there's some merit to this idea that you kind of need a professional with, with ties to all of these areas, or at least some areas, to actually move this, this, the process forward? I think that's exactly right. And um, Erica and Mike, feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. But my impression of Doan's from what I've read is that they're a, they're a visionary and uh, that maybe we need somebody who's uh, got a little bit more experience uh, in the weeds. Right. And, well, and Eric, I was going to ask you specifically about this because you've been hammering away at this point. What? So, <laughs> how long did it take for us to get 
ahead of this agency, and how long is it going to take for us again? Because this is not, it's like the, it's a great opportunity and a bad job. Well, yeah, what, that's funny. What I was about to say is, you know, somebody said to me recently, um, a source said to me recently, you know, that anyone who wants this job is not qualified for it, should not have it. <laughs> the philosopher king idea. Right? <laughs> and so, I mean, it was, it was very hard to get a leader for this agency. The first person dropped out after the agency, you know, was already beginning to kind of swirl uh, in a spiral of chaos. Right. Um, Mark Jones was the second pick. And uh, Mark uh, was in charge of the consulting firm that came up with the whole plan in the first place, which I think, you know, also you know, made them not the maybe the greatest pick for this um, for for the leader of the agency in terms of flexibility when things don't go according to plan. Well, and he broke the number one rule of consultants, which is consult and escape. Right, <laughs> right, and I and I think I think that you know the the next leader. I you know I don't know if it is a politician. I feel like might be a little too close to the visionary end of the scale because politicians want to kind of be seen as the heroes and have their vision. You know, get credit for their vision. Well, and going don't into and effect. don't want the liability of a process gone awry. Right, right, and so. So I, I think it's going to take a very long time. There's an interim in place right now. She said she'll serve for six months. Mm-hmm. And I think it could take longer than that. When you – what do you – I mean, I'll throw this out to the group. What do you think are the – what would you say would be – if you had to create a job description, I mean, what would be, <laughs> what would be the, the top of the list here as far as – is it just someone who can actually – get along with other people or is it someone who's a great administrator i mean and less visionary but good at good at moving the process along what would you say a collaborative uh, uh person uh, with uh, experience administering uh, complex contracts right i mean because it's a contracting job i mean it is a lot of other things and it is you're you know, routing a lot of money to a lot of different but you're routing a lot right. of money yeah and they're supposed to you know redo all their contracks next year because don's you know said that they're all a disaster and they all need to be redone i don't know if that's still going to happen but i mean if if you're going to do that, that's a huge process, and they still can't get people paid on time now. And what's their level of staffing? Are they going to be hiring additional staff for this, or or do we even know? They they are, but what's interesting about their staffing? So they they supposedly have more than a hundred staff right now, um, but I don't I don't know what the actual number is because they have a lot of positions that they've been hiring for for a long time with like no end date for um you know for when the position closes, which is never a good sign. Um, they're just you know hiring until filled. And I mean, there's like, I I don't know how many there are right now, but a a dozen, two dozen. So um, I think hiring at the agency has also been a little difficult. Hmm. Well, and and we also have this issue, as as Mike brought up, that we've got um, additional growth pressure now. So this job is not is going to one would guess if we if we are going to ascribe growth to a variety of other uh, situations in Seattle, this job is going to get harder, uh, probably not easier. Right, Mike? Absolutely. Absolutely. You want to know who we need? Uh, We need tights and a cape and the ability to fly. (laughs) It's going to take a really special person to balance everything that needs to be balanced here. And and it's going to come with thick skin because I, I don't see homelessness hitting zero anytime soon. So you can't come in with no vision zero, none of that. Like you got to come in and be honest and tell us you're going to do the best that you can do with the resources that you have and cross your fingers that Seattle plays ball with you. I think we talked about the fact last time when I was on that maybe they should stop attaching zero to things (laughs) that they're never going to achieve zero (laughs) on. Yeah, that makes some sense. All right, let's move to a little bit of a lighter, quick, lighter subject. I saw this story. I saw the investigative piece in The Stranger. I thought it was pretty funny. But I think that there's a serious underpinning here. So it appears that there's one Taco Bell in Seattle that has unusually high prices. In other words, double what the prices are at many other – and literally Taco Bells that are within a mile and a half. It is the outlier on incredibly expensive. There is a – and for those of you who don't look at – uh, the the R Seattle Reddit thread you really should because there's all kinds of goofy stuff that pops up on there and it's really worth a read. That's where I ran across this story. First off, well, so there is a there was a discussion out there. I'm not sure whether this is true, but I'm just going to have to ask the question on air. There is a rumor that Catherine has never eaten at a Taco Bell. Oh is my God, true? that is so true. That's so true. I've never had a Taco Bell. So actually, I was going to ask. You've never been to Taco Bell. You've never had a Taco Bell. Even the way she says it. How is that even possible? I, I don't know. Don't ask me. But listen, so, so to set the parameters of this, of this debate, I need somebody to tell me what a Crunchwrap is. 
Oh, well, okay. So, so I'm not a crunch wrap person, but there is this great story. And this is, um, this is what is also making me happy this week. So you can skip me on that. Um, but there's this great story in the New Yorker, um, that you have to read that is about the science behind all of these Taco Bell creations and the crunch wrap. Oh, was, I'm going to read this I mean, as soon as the show is over. Years to figure out how to like tessellate the parts of the tortilla that goes on the outside. So it's a soft tortilla. <laughs> Over a crunchy, um, a crunchy shell with uh-huh. taco filling, so it's soft and crunchy at the same time. But uh, I mean, it took there's there's a massive amount of work that went into engineering this thing so it could be mass produced. Um, My conception of a crunch wrap now is a tessellated taco. <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll give you a whole new appreciation even Never if you don't uh, even if you don't describe. read uh, but, actually. But what it. was what was this investigative <laughs> report? What's what's the findings in the stranger? Essentially, that apparently uh, the stranger had seen postings on this Taco Bell being crazy expensive what the the reporter went out and photographed menus at a variety of taco bells and found that indeed uh something that so the 11 dollar crunch wrap at it the queen anne lower queen anne's uh taco bell it is literally twice as expensive as a mile up the road the taco bell in ballard and other and they posted the prices of a variety of taco bells <laughs> all of which were sort of aligned with the ballard and none of them and then i started thinking well all right I'm not a Taco Bell person. I don't go to Taco Bell very often at all. I mean, maybe not in year, maybe not for years at this particular point. But I was kind of wondering, like, well, I thought that franchises maybe they would control that a little bit more. Maybe they would actually set the maximum prices. Apparently, they don't. But then I started thinking about this. Well, what if? And I'm not saying that they're doing this, but what if that's actually what we should be paying? And maybe we should be paying more for fast food. And maybe that could mean like. We should have like, you know, because the city has tried to accommodate for or adjust for better wages for folks of minimum wage and things like that. Maybe this is what we should be paying. Mike, do you feel like the you're paying too little for a Taco Bell? Or do you even go to what, what what's the term? Mike, the, the Lewis, tessellated what are we taco? What are we doing right now? <laughs> Somebody get in here. Are you arguing for inflation right now? Are you asking them to charge us more for things? Do you understand this? Yes, I am. Oh, what, what are we doing? What are we? I'm gonna have to send Bill a text. No, we are not paying too much for anything. Prices, if anything, prices need to go down. Shout out to that reporter, though, for going to all of these Taco Bells. <laughs> Real shoe leather journalism. It really, yeah, though. Exactly. If they ate Taco Bell at, at every location, north to south in Seattle, that is, they need an award. You fast. guys are snobs. <laughs> <laughs> it, it blew my mind, though. I assume that all the prices at all the fast food places were the same. I don't eat meat, so I don't really, I don't do a lot of fast food, but like, just hearing, I mean, $11 for any one thing at a Taco Bell is insanity. Wait a minute. Taco Bell is one of the places you can actually be vegan. One of the few. Vegan? Really? Like Taco Bell? Yep. That, I, we'll talk. I think, I think we've got only one Taco Bell expert. One this Taco is, Bell expert in the room. So, so, so I can't promise you that anyone is going to actually find out why this is more expensive. Certainly... Catherine Free market liberalism, be. man. <laughs> this is what the market will bear. Bring it's it true. on. That's true. They're certainly not closed. They're certainly not closed. So I guess they're selling all the crunch wraps they can That's handle. The all area. the tessellated tacos. Yeah, all the tessellated. Out of that arena. <laughs> In fact, you should even suggest that on their menu to go I with the tess- eleven dollars for, for a tessellated, tessellated taco. taco. I would actually probably do <laughs> just to get that on the menu. All right, uh, that will actually uh, amount for since we're running a little short on time. That will amount for our smile today, since we all got a smile out of that. Our panelists today are insider investigations correspondent. Catherine Long, Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett, KUOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Week in Review is produced by Kevin Kniestet, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza, uh, Teo Popescu, uh, Bernard Wallet is running the board. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Lewis, and thank you all for, for joining us. Thanks so much for having thank us. You.